Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Today's episode, we meet John Buchan, author of Code of the Forest, where we find ourselves at the intersection of good old boy politics and attack on the free press. In John's novel, a powerful South Carolina senator works hard to take down publisher Wade McNabb's small town newspaper after a story prints exposes high level political corruption. To fend off the threat, McNabb forms an uneasy relationship with young lawyer Kate Stewart, and together they put everything on the line to protect the newspaper's confidential source in a lawsuit that could bring ruin to both of them first sentence of the book introduces us to the antagonist. Quote, Senator Buck Ravenel hunkered in the chill of low country dawn, pondering ducks and politics. We start this episode in the first chapter with John reading about a hunting trip that explains how the power of influence is sometimes greater than the rightness of a cause. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Judge Jones shifted his stiff legs in the duck blind. He blew his warm breath on the cold fingers of his trigger hand. Buck, what's been bringing you to Georgetown so much these past few weeks, the judge asked. I haven't seen you in my courtroom. The senator was quiet for a moment. I've been helping out some old friends with that phosphate plant they want to build over on the Waccamaw River, he said finally. It'll be a great deal for Georgetown, damn good-paying jobs, the kind of company that gives back to the community and all that sort of happy crap. He grunted and spat. But right now, all those tree huggers are trying to stop it, having little wine and cheese fundraisers to get everybody all worked up. Some pissant reporter for the Georgetown paper is fishing around like he's after some big old trophy bass. Ravenel checked the chamber on his 12-gauge. Well, we'll get it all straightened out, though. I'm not worried about that. Don't tell me any more than I need to know, Buck, the judge said. Ravenel gave him a tight grin. Don't worry, Dupree. I'll tell you just enough, just like always. They listened for a moment in the silence, hoping for the sound of ducks. Nothing yet. Ravenel rested his shotgun across his knee and scratched the head of the judge's chocolate Labrador retriever of muddy waters. Dupree, you know how I first heard about Bowman's Forest? It was 1970. I was a year out of law school, 
and I had my first case set for trial in Marion County. My client had slipped on a wet spot in a grocery store and slammed his head on the floor. He was never quite the same, lost his job driving a long-haul truck. Buddy Beeson was the lawyer for the grocery store, and its insurance company wouldn't offer us a nickel to settle. Said it was the man's own damn fault for not watching where he was walking. Beeson, he was the senator for Marion County back then, the judge asked. Yeah, but I didn't give a good goddamn about that. I was too green to know any better, Ravenel said, peering straight ahead at the tall pines across the pond. The early morning sun had begun to burn away the mist rising from the water. I had a damn good case. This was no wino actor with a chiropractor kind of whining plaintiff. This was a hard-working man who had really been hurt. I just wanted a jury of 12 good people to hear my client tell his story and explain how his life had been taken away. Trial was set for the week before Christmas. You know how generous juries are around the holidays. The insurance company lawyers use every excuse in the book to avoid those Santa Claus juries. I was sure we could get a couple of hundred thousand dollars in damages. When we got to the courthouse, I was one ready son of a bitch. I had my exhibits to show the jury. I had a specialist from the medical school set to testify about how my client's mind had never recovered. I had the wife ready to testify about her husband was a different man, a lesser man, after his accident. My client and his whole family were there. The quiet morning exploded with quacks and whistling that sounded like a gridlock in Manhattan. Ravenel's eyes caught the first flight of six mallards as they cleared the green tops of the pines. They were flapping for all they were worth, the leader setting the pace, necks stretched straight, lusting for the food, the water, the peace in the pond. Muddy Waters heard the racket and began to fidget. God almighty damn, explained the judge, here we go. Jones stood, pocketed his flask, and released the safety on his own shotgun. Shots exploded from each hunter's gun, but Muddy never left his spot. Two more groups of mallards, and 18 shots later, the carefully trained, soft-mouthed retriever, better pedigreed than most racehorses, had returned a dozen ducks, still warm to the touch. You didn't finish your story, said Judge Jones, as he rubbed his proud puppy between the ears. What did Santa Claus bring you? Ravenel was counting the ducks, dividing them up. Finally, he spoke, shaking his head at the memory. Before we could start picking a jury, the judge called us back to his chambers, he said. I sat down across from the judge and started to tell him about my case. Beeson, he just leaned back in his chair and propped his feet up against the edge of the judge's desk. He asked the judge about his family and about how his daughter was enjoying her first year at Clemson. Then the judge asked Beeson if he was taking folks down to Bowman's Forest that winter to go duck hunting. Told Beeson how much fun he'd had on last year's trip. The judge said he'd eaten his last duck from that trip just a few weeks ago at Thanksgiving. Ravenel shook his head and laughed. I had no damn idea what they were talking about. But then Beeson dropped his feet to the floor, slapped his thighs, and said, Judge, I got a few of those ducks left in my freezer. I'll bring some over to you this weekend, and we need to go hunting again. The judge smiled at Beeson, and then he frowned at me and said, Mr. Ravenel, I've read your trial brief, and I believe your case has some problems. I think Mr. Beeson's motion to dismiss has a great deal of merit. Now, I suspect he's about to offer you $30,000 to settle, settle this case. 
I suggest you go out there and have a come to Jesus meeting with your client and help him understand why he should accept that offer. You can tell him the judge appears to be on the verge of dismissing his lawsuit, in which case he'll get nothing. Ravenel reached down to pick up his share of ducks. He put his hand on the judge's shoulder. I left that room pretty shook up. My client couldn't believe it. He knew how much we had prepared, but he needed money bad, and $30,000 would at least pay some of his overdue bills. I cut my fee to almost nothing, but the whole family was crying when I left them. I tell you what, Dupree, I walked out of that courthouse hating the law, hating politics, hating judges, and hating the state legislators who appoint them. I was just beginning to understand how things work. As I headed down the courthouse steps with my tail between my legs, Beeson came hustling up beside me. He threw his arm around my shoulder all buddy-like and chuckled. You know, Buck, that case of yours wasn't half bad, but you know what your biggest problem was? I said, no, I guess I don't. That son of a bitch braided me like a mule. Buck, your problem was you didn't have no ducks in your freezer. Ravenel lifted his three brace of ducks, their gray bodies and green heads dangling limply at his ankles. He smiled at Judge Jones. Do good, my friend. That was 25 years ago. Ravenel's blue eyes were wide and twinkling. As they say in the country, I realized I needed to move up closer to the main road and start subscribing to the newspaper. I wised up some. And now here I am at Bowman's Forest. My Senate committee picks the judges. I got ducks in my freezer, and I win most of my cases. John Buchan is a Charlotte lawyer with four decades of experience representing newspapers and broadcasters in First Amendment disputes, but he got his start as an investigative reporter during the Watergate era, and, and this experience, in addition to growing up in a small South Carolina town, gave him plenty of ideas for the novel Code of the Forest. The North Carolina Press Association awarded him the William C. Lassiter First Amendment Award in 2000 for his tireless efforts to defend the First Amendment and to protect the public's right to know. The antagonist in Code of the Forest, Buck Ravenel, would have cared very little for such an award because he was determined to use his position to repress the newspaper to shine a bright light on his form of political corruption. A native of Mullins, South Carolina, John enjoys reading, tennis, fly fishing, nature photography, and all the time he can get with his grandchildren. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, ducks in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know you're a fly fisherman. Are you a hunter too? I'm really not a hunter. Okay, but yeah. you, you must have learned that growing up well, somewhere. Growing yeah. up, we all hunted some back then. Yeah. And you're a product of a small town in South Carolina, Mullins. I mean, I, I know you've talked about it over the years and as we've known each other, but I don't know that I know too much about it. Tell us about the town, what it was like to grow up there, and how that experience shaped some aspects of this novel. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that, and I'll tell it uh, in a little bit of context of some other uh, parts of that. Uh, Annie Dillard, uh, remember, I'm a lawyer who's written this one book, which uh, mm-hmm. has been fun for me. But Annie Dillard, who I think is a of as a real writer uh once said (laughs) that uh that good fiction occurs when memory and imagination meet and so years ago i thought about some of the experiences and cultures that had shaped me and i realized that not any uh one of them was particularly unique 
but the combination of them was a little different. And so I thought I'd try to pull together some of those and see if I could make a story about it that also included some themes and uh, that, that were important to me. So one of those uh, uh, experiences that shaped me was growing up in a small tobacco town, about 6,000 people, of Mullen, South Carolina. It's the largest tobacco market in South Carolina. That experience truly shaped me, and my parents had grown up in that part of the state. My dad had grown up in Mullins. So that's one of the experiences that uh, growing up there in the 1950s and the mm-hmm. 1960s was a, was a big influence. It was in the range of how people interact with each other, a culture of storytelling where when people had a little bit of a parable they wanted to tell mm-hmm. you, they, they didn't. They didn't just tell you the parable. They told you a story that had a point. Sitting around on the porch hearing, a, hearing stories at night. A, yeah. Absolutely. That's just the way people talked. And, and of course, the culture of tobacco. And uh, so one of the characters in the book uh, has, a, has a good explanation of some of how that worked. Yeah. So a little disclosure, you and I practiced law together for many years. and uh, Yeah, many decades. Maybe. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you were very clandestine with your law partners when you were writing this book. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't, I didn't know about it. I didn't know you'd been up to it okay. for a while. And uh, was it because you didn't want to tell us about it because you might not finish it? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, when I started this, it really was to capture these different experiences, and I'll talk about some of those. But right. um, I didn't think I could write a novel. I thought I could write some experiences, and I thought I could tell some stories. But the more I got into it, the more I wanted to. I wanted to make these uh, stories into something that had a bigger force to it mm-hmm. but i was afraid i was going to fail so i didn't want to tell everybody i mean I, you know guess what every former journalist or journalist and every trial lawyer thinks they got right, a book right, in them, right. <laughs> and i didn't want to be just one more of those who thought they had a book in them but just talked about it and didn't do it so, so i wanted it, to do it yeah. before i talked about it yeah. so did it start out kind of writing little stories about where you grew up and then kind of morphed into this story or did you have an idea that it was going to be a novel no i I knew what i wanted to do if i could do it and i had had this germ of a story in my head since i was a reporter in my 20s Mm -hmm. uh uh, you know i was only a reporter for like three or four years and then i went to law school and practice law but uh but I, i was really interested in journalism and went on to you know represent journalists as part of what i did did as my practice but uh, I had this idea about politics and the culture of favors that it starts with. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing favors for our, our friends, whether we're politicians or not. And if you're in politics, of course you do favors for people, and they do them for you. And you get your constituents what they want, and they get their constituents. But what I saw was over a period of time, you'd see where people didn't even have to ask each other for favors. They knew what the other person wanted. And well, <laughs> and, and it's kind of interesting that we're having we're doing this podcast during a time when our president's being investigated, and there's all this legal analysis about what is and is not collusion and what is and is is not obstruction and it's it's you know there's the whole quid pro quo which is a legal definition but what you're saying is as i hear it uh, you don't have to say it out loud right <laughs> right that's exactly it and, and i hope i'm pretty sure this comes across yeah, yeah. in the book that yeah. uh, ultimately the character you mentioned buck ravenel that we just read about uh is a state senator he, he crosses that line let's yeah, just say yeah. he does the truth is, a question I always ask people when I'm talking to them who've read the book, do you think he would have done the same thing for his friend, whether he was getting a little extra payoff on the side or not? Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? But, so, it, but there's a certain ambiguity about these yeah, things, and I yeah. think that's part of what one of the themes of the book. 
So there's a lot of debate, John, out there among writers about whether it's good writing advice to tell a writer to write what you know. But in your case, I get the sense that this idea kind of served you well. You're a journalist who covers South Carolina politics. You're a trial lawyer. You're a lawyer who represents newspapers. You grew up in a small South Carolina town. You're a guy who likes a good story. All that kind of came together in this book, right? Right. Well, that's, yeah. that's why I like that Annie Dillard quote about memory and imagination. There's a lot of memory in here. Right. But there's a lot of imagination in here, uh, right. and that's what makes it fun, to be honest, to, to get to write something like that. You've written some yourself, and yeah. you understand that, I know. Yeah. So uh, I'm told that listeners are interested in how authors come up with their ideas for plot and characters. Was this book a slow drip of an idea, or did the you said it kind of was germinating over time? Right. So while you're doing your filling out your timesheet and you're keeping up with all the things that the right. firm does, you've got these ideas kicking around right. in your head? Yeah. Yeah. And when did the, the vision of uh, Wade McNabb, Buck Ravenel, and Kate Stewart come to you? Well, it, it goes back a ways. But I've written down since I was in my 20s. Uh, interesting things that I saw or heard. I was a, a note taker, a, a journal keeper going way back. And so some of the sayings and some of the, uh, some of the good language that shows up in this book are things I had heard or are, are embellished. I'd heard and embellished some with, with, with my thoughts. But as I said, I, th I thought a lot about these different experiences. The, the, uh, you know, the South Carolina coast plays a big role in this book. Right. Uh, Ocean Drive Beach, uh, that part of the South Carolina coast, was a big part of my growing up. I grew up 50 miles from there, and my folks had a little small, modest beach cottage down there. So I spent, or as one of our law partners used to say, misspent my youth <laughs> <laughs> down my teenage years down there. Uh, maybe partly because of that, my parents decided I should go off to boarding school. And uh, so that experience, not unique to me, but the combination of these things begins to be a little different. Yeah, and, we're going to have a reading from the boarding school in just a right, few minutes. Right. So, that, so that's, right. that's one of the forests that uh, shows up here. So confession time here, say, right. when I was practicing law with you, I knew, mm -hmm. I knew lawyers could become authors, but it was kind of a bit abstract until someone down the hall, you, wrote a book and had some success, and it never really occurred to me that that might be something I could do. So I appreciate, you know, you being a good example for that and encouraging me along the way. Have you found, uh, um, I think we kind of reach our, I think I've got a quote of about two to three lawyers a season here, you know, right, but, right. but there are a lot of lawyers out there who are writing books now. I mean, right. what do you think it is? It's just. Uh, well, uh, A, and I said the same thing about journalists yeah. uh, having books in them. These are word people. I mean, right. lawyers uh, live every day with the, uh, a concept that words matter, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in a document uh, in a corporate deal or whether it's in a courtroom. Uh, precision in words matters, and storytelling matters, particularly for trial lawyers, I think, uh, lawyers who really go to court and, and um, mm -hmm. get to argue with, uh, uh, with uh, two juries and, and with other other uh, opponents. It probably made you a better writer, too, as a lawyer, having gone through this process. Yeah, oh, I think so. Active, and, and, active voice, keep it moving, Right. <laughs> make it right. interesting, right. don't bore the judge to death with your fact <laughs> section or your brief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a uh, – it is, again, particularly as a first-time deal, knowing when you – when you're telling enough of the backstory to make sure people understand why people got to be where mm -hmm. they are, how mm -hmm. they changed, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot written about how you get to doing that. But anyway, I did it in a way that uh, I hoped moved fast enough to keep people interested, but slow enough so that they got to understand the characters and the depth of these characters and how their circumstances 
made them change or made them refuse to change. Yeah, no, it, ha it, it has a good arc. You do you follow the rules in terms of uh, giving each of the characters an arc. Uh, uh, although Ravenel, he he pretty much stuck to his <laughs> until until he got his comeuppance in the end. But uh, let's go. Let's take Ravenel back a few years to when he's in boys' school. He he's a straight lacer. He he's actually a prefect, I think, is what they called him. Right. So he's got to keep order. He's got to enforce the law, and he's he's trying to do that for this next read uh, that you're going to do here, um, which I think is. And this gets to the title of the book a little bit. Let's talk about the title. Sure. Code of the Forest. There's. There's two hidden meanings behind this, right? Right. Okay, right. go ahead and tell our listeners about that. Well, one of the experiences that shapes Buck Ravenel in this book is going away to a boarding school, a Westminster Forest uh, School in, in this fictitious uh, book. And uh, so there's that forest, and there's a, there's a, a code there, among mm -hmm. other things. Which we're going to hear about in just a second. Right. Yeah, yeah. A friendship. Right, a friendship right, and right. looking out for, for your friends. And then there's, in South Carolina... Once he's a senator, he learns, and we mentioned it a little bit in the uh, in the part I read before about being at Bowman's Forest. And uh, there are so many of these kinds of hunting lodges across North and South Carolina that uh, I couldn't tell you how many people came up to me when I'd be speaking about the book and say, "I know exactly I know where exactly. you're talking about." I know, and they would describe some place yeah. that, that was not it. But it, I, it, like it was it. modeled after a particular yeah. one, but um, but it was. So Bowman's Forest was the other forest where these folks would get together, often legislators, powerful people, judges, to uh, drink a little, uh, yeah. uh, a little white wine or red wine or maybe some brown wine, right. some bourbon or something, and uh, shoot a few ducks and uh, tell some stories and uh, make sure they understood uh, the favors that each other might need. Right, and and it's a perfect title, but I'm guessing. It probably wasn't the first one you came up with, right? Right, right. And, uh, and how many how many did you go through before you got to Code of the Forest? Well, it narrowed it narrowed pretty quickly to two. One was called the Right Connections because this book is about not just political connections; mm -hmm. it's about personal connections and and family connections, right. father, son, uh, mother, daughter, uh, uh, friend, and friend. And and I have to say, a couple of my editors and the publisher were skeptical of Code of the Forest, thinking it was a little too obscure. Yeah. But I won. And yeah. <laughs> that's what I, I I'm glad you did because it yeah. gives you something to explore to try to understand why why it's named that. All right, so we've got this incident. Buck has a, a, a roommate. Uh, he, he comes home one evening uh, early. The roommate has a girl in the room, and that's forbidden, right, at right. the – Bowman, you couldn't drink, you couldn't have girls in the room, and a couple other rules too, right? A lot of rules. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to – and he's just torn. He doesn't know what to do, and uh, he's trying to figure out whether to turn his friend in. And uh, the scene you're going to read is where he goes to speak to the headmaster about this incident. Buck was a little torn. He wondered if the headmaster would have offered him as good a deal if he had been the one caught with his pants down and a bottle of bourbon beside him. I guess that works, he said finally. Buck looked down at his hands and twisted the gold Westminster senior ring with the turquoise stone on his left ring finger. The headmaster seemed to need more complicity than that. Buck, you've got to be comfortable with this. If you're not, I'm okay with you taking it to the prefect board. Buck looked up, and the headmaster's eyes were locked calmly, unblinking onto Buck's. Buck knew what to say. I'm comfortable with it, sir. The headmaster leaned back a little in his chair, clearly relaxed. You send Vince up here this afternoon. I'll wear him out, and he won't know it, but this little tryst of his may help us pay for the new student theater. 
At the end of our conversation, his dad mentioned that he had been meaning to tell me that he and his brothers would make up any shortfall in the fundraising for that building. Right now, we're about $250,000 short. Buck thought, but could not be sure, that he saw the headmaster's right eye give him a quick wink. I'm going to tell Vince about our decision, the headmaster said. I'm going to tell him that I wanted to turn this over to the prefect board and that they would have kicked his butt all the way back to Raleigh. I'll tell him that you argued his case for him and convinced me that he had not been drinking and that having this girl in the dorm room was not a dismissal offense. I'm going to tell him you saved his ass. He'll be grateful to you for the rest of his life, and you'll have a damn good friend when you need one. The headmaster glanced at the crossword puzzle sitting between them. I don't think you added too much here while I was gone, though, Buck. Why don't you head back and tell Vince I'm up here waiting on him? They stood up and shook hands. The headmaster tapped the Latin inscription on Buck's Westminster ring. And Buck, don't ever forget the code of the forest. Amasai usque ad aras. Friends until the end. So Buck's getting a little training of a different kind in, <laughs> in, in school that type? Well, yeah, and I want to I stress the importance of ambiguity here. Right. Uh, you know, Buck had come back unexpectedly a night early from this weekend away that he'd had permission to do. And he gets back to their room, and there's his great friend, his best friend, his roommate, Vince, uh, with a girl uh, in his uh, bed. Uh, and uh, uh, and some bourbon there beside him, and Vince quickly explains when he gets over the shock that uh, that uh, the girl had brought the bourbon. She was from town. They'd come out in a cab, and uh, uh, and that he hadn't been drinking anything. But couldn't smell uh, bourbon on his breath, and he didn't seem drunk. So it was ambiguous. But he also felt compelled to follow the rules. And he didn't want to go to the prefect board because he knew there were folks there gunning for Vince. But, so, but ambiguous at first, but when he looked over before he left, he saw two <laughs> cups there, both of which had some liquid That's right. Drink. That's right. So he had that doubt in his mind. He had some doubt. So he went and talked to the headmaster, yeah. and the headmaster came up with a sort of a compromise solution that he right. thought would be for the benefit of everybody. Vince's family had some problems at home, might have mm-hmm. been a better thing. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just a clear-cut, let's do the – Let's do the right thing for the people with a little bit of power. It was a little ambiguous about why the headmaster made that decision, but he wanted Buck on board for sure. And Vince, this friend of his, figures into the plot later, right? Exactly. Okay, tell, yeah. tell us how Vince figures in. Well, Vince goes on to uh, uh, be a lawyer in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. Uh, he ends up having a, a, an important client who wants to build a phosphate plant where there's some rich phosphate reserves on the South Carolina coast right on the Waccamaw River, right in this rich estuary uh, that leads uh, where five great rivers from South Carolina flow into the uh, Atlantic Ocean, uh, full of uh, great sea life and, and, uh, uh, and, and estuaries. And there's a great fear that uh, among many that building this plant there is going to harm the environment irreparably. And Vince gets Buck on board with him, knowing Buck's a lawyer and knowing that Buck's a powerful state senator and knowing that Buck's son happens to be the head of the state environmental regulatory agency that deals with such permits. All right, so now we're setting up the, the pollution and the corruption that goes with it. And 
we're going to bring some more characters in here because what happens is that you've got a reporter working for this small newspaper, which is owned by Wade McNabb, right? Right. And he, he gets he sniffs out a story that's connected to putting this deal together with this phosphate plant, and they write a story, and it doesn't please Buck Ravenel too much. Yeah. <laughs> which leads to a lawsuit. Exactly. Okay, a, a, a libel lawsuit. A libel lawsuit. Yeah, <clears throat> which you've built, dealt with plenty of over, over the years, or at least you tried to deal with preventing them too. That's right. <laughs> over the years. It's always better to help prevent them. But yeah. so, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, so Wade McNabb, Wade Hampton McNabb, in the uh, great yeah. South Carolina, famous That's name. Good old yeah. uh, Civil War type name, right. yeah. Uh, his dad had owned the Georgetown Pilot, uh, as it's called in the book. And uh, in, in the fictional story, of course, right. and this is all made up, all my imagination, uh, had owned the paper. And his dad, back in the 70s, uh, had been a, a stand-up guy in that community. And for his era, uh, slightly on the moderate side, progressive side of, uh, of some issues, particularly race. And he had pushed that a little bit harder uh, in his newspaper than some of the local folks uh, had liked. And essentially, they gave him his uh, marching orders. And the racial issue there got mixed up with some of the steel mill strike that was going on in that, uh, in that town, uh, largely driven by uh, a largely African-American uh, union. So the local folks had run, essentially uh, uh, organized a boycott against uh, Wade McNabb's dad. And it cost him his newspaper. It went mm-hmm. out of business. Wade McNabb himself had gone on to be a journalist had traveled around the country, had won many awards, had worked at big newspapers, and, but eventually followed his dream to come back to Georgetown and run a paper the way he thought it ought to be run and maybe in some way pay some debts he felt he had to his dad. So he does. So uh, he's not a crusading guy. He didn't come back there to start any crusades, but one of his young reporters uh, gets a tip-off about uh, who's looking into this, uh, the politics around this permit and the environment, the, the, the phosphate plant coming in, and he gets a tip from a guy who says, I'll tell you what's going down, because I heard it go down, but you got to promise never to reveal me. It ruined my life uh, and, and some other lives of my family. So they listen to him, and what he says is that he overheard the conversation down at Bowman's Forest between uh, Vince, the mm-hmm. lawyer, uh, from Raleigh, and uh, Buck Ravenel, and a few other folks where essentially uh, Buck Ravenel and some other folks were promised uh, uh, an opportunity to invest in a, <laughs> in a very uh, lucrative. potentially lucrative uh, piece of land. Uh, yeah. By the way, they don't have to put any money down right now, and if yeah. it doesn't go well, then they, they just walk away, and if it goes well, they get a lot of profit out yeah. of it a couple of years later. Which is the perfect setup for what I want you to do yeah. now is a 90-second read of, of Ravenel after he finds out that someone's leaked this. Right. Vince Stone greeted Buck Ravenel just inside the tall double doors of Carolina Country Club. Stone led the unhappy senator to a quiet corner table in the club's grill room. A copy of the Sunday edition of the Georgetown Pilot was tucked under Ravenel's arm. When the two reached their table, he tossed it onto the tablecloth in front of Stone. Stone calmly folded it over and pushed it to the side of the table. Buck, I read it last night, Stone said in a soothing tone. It's not that big a deal. 
Remember, this is just a story in yesterday's newspaper. They publish another newspaper every damn day, and people will forget about this one by tomorrow. It's just a blip on the screen, the crisis of the day. Ravenel didn't hear a word, Stone said. Who in the name of hell do you think leaked this shit? Buck asked angrily. Buck, keep your voice down a little, okay? Stone said, patting the senator's forearm. This really isn't as bad as you think it is. That's easy for you to say, sitting up here in Raleigh, Ravenel said. Your name's not plastered all over the pages of every major newspaper in South Carolina with everybody assuming you're a goddamn crook. Stone stayed cool, nodding at Buck. Who do you think leaked it, Stone asked. First thing this morning, I had my son Tripp pull the telephone records of that guy, Meyer, who wrote the draft report. There's no indication he ever telephoned Sandy Anderson or any other reporter for that matter. Tripp grilled his ass this morning, and he's convinced that Meyer had never even heard of Sandy Anderson before today. Tripp asked him for permission to get the telephone company to turn over his home telephone records, and Meyer agreed to do that on the spot. He doesn't seem to have anything to hide. I assume plenty of people could have had access to that early version of the report on the agency's computer system, Stone said. That doesn't worry me so much, and it's something Tripp can explain to the press. I'm more worried about the comments relating to the investment opportunity. Okay, so right. Buck, Buck Ravenel's not happy. Um, it, something's been leaked. We know we're heading toward a lawsuit. He wants to find out who this confidential source is. And you've done a lot of that work, right, John, trying to protect for, the, for newspapers and, and broadcast companies' confidential sources, right? Ab- absolutely. So we're going to introduce somebody else here to the story, Kate Stewart. She's a lawyer. She was with a big law firm. She's come to the small town, but she's going to represent the newspaper. And there's a short scene here I'd like you to read before the break where she's talking with Wade McNabb, the newspaper owner, about this loss. Anything you want to say before we start that? Yeah, just one thing to sort of set it up is, is, uh, you know, it may well be that uh, Buck Ravenel was more interested in trying to find out who in South Carolina was brave enough to take him on. (laughs) And he wanted to know who this confidential source was, and this libel suit was a way to try to get it. I've done work for home security insurance before, Kate said. The folks there know me, and they should be fine with my representing the pilot. Now, have you ever been sued before? No, Wade said. I guess I've been lucky. I've never been sued. Not once in two decades of being a reporter and editor. I've never even been a witness before. How about Sandy Anderson, your reporter? You ever been sued? Nah, he's only been a reporter for a year or two. He's a little wet behind the ears, but he's a smart guy, and I think he's pretty tough for such a young fellow. Is there anything in his personnel file, anything about him being a sloppy reporter, you know, annual evaluations, that sort of thing that could hurt us? Sometimes that's the soft underbelly, and Ravenel is already sniffing around there in his request for documents. In a libel case I had some years ago against an upstate newspaper, we hit a gold mine in the reporter's personnel file. The string of reprimands from his editors was two pages long, detailing his history of careless mistakes. The jury loved hearing about that. Wade clasped his hands behind his head, leaned back, and stared through closed lids toward the ceiling in the old dining room. No, he said, I can't think of a single thing. Kate picked up her coffee cup and walked over to the conference room's bay window. What do you think the Ravenels really want out of this lawsuit, she asked. I'm not sure, Wade said. I'm confident the article is true. Our source is strong. The Ravenels haven't denied that this meeting at the forest took place or that the agency's decision 
got reversed right after that. What they don't like is the suggestion that they got paid for making it happen. My bet is Buck Ravenel thinks he can scare us into backing off our coverage of the phosphate plant debate, Wade said. Or maybe he thinks he can squeeze the name of our confidential source out of Sandy or me so he can get a little political retribution. But I don't work that way. That's not going to happen. Kate completed her slow circle around the room and sat back down across the table from Wade. Just beneath her coffee cup, Wade could make out some faint lettering from an ancient cigarette advertisement on the tobacco barn door that made up her conference room table. Reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, it said. Or maybe, Kate said, he wants to win this suit and take your newspaper away from you so he can be the new publisher. She saw a flicker of fear in Wade's eyes. He blinked, and then it was gone. All right, when we come back, we're going to have our writing life segment with uh, John Buckin. We're going to talk some more about Code of the Forest. He's going to read a few more things. There might be a cliffhanger at the end that uh, he's going to leave you with, so, uh, so stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here at the Robinson Spangler Carolina Room, Uptown Branch, Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a great resource uh, for citizens of Charlotte and, and the region. I'm here with Tom Hanchett, the historian in resident, and we're talking about the books that are available uh, in this great space. Tell us about this first book, Tom. This is a, a novel that is set in part, I think, in Charlotte. Carson McCullers wrote The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which is now a classic of American literature. It was an Oprah Winfrey book club selection a few years ago. Um, she was just out of high school. She came to Charlotte with her uh, her new husband in the Great Depression, lived in a rooming house up on um, Central Avenue and then another one over in Dilworth, and started to write about what it was like to be a y- lonely young person in the city. And another book that you've got here, which was on our podcast, uh, uh, in the second season, written by uh, former journalist Pam Kelly, is called Money Rock. And it, it's interesting to pair it with Carson McCullers' Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which is a book that in some ways talks about the structures of poverty that made it hard for people to advance in Charlotte during the Great Depression. Money Rock is about a cocaine dealer. Uh, now Minister Belton Platt, but back in the 90s, he was known as Money Rock, the most flamboyant and successful cocaine dealer in Charlotte, went to prison for it. Um, But he came out of a a situation uh, where that seemed to be the only way upwards. So when you talk about opportunity, structures of poverty, uh, Money Rock, powerful book. Yeah, and it it was, I really enjoyed the interview with Pam. She really brought out a side of Charlotte with this book that you wouldn't know if you're just now moving here. And uh, even when you lived through it, it was a bit of a surprise to know what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, Charlotte is a city where it's real easy to assume that everybody's kind of like you, and that's not the case. All right, so for uh, more resources like this, go to cmlibrary.org or just stop by any branch. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with John Buckin, Code of the Forest. Uh, John, so you got a lot of you know, you're not painting a very uh, nice picture of South Carolina politics. So I guess, you know, 
have you, have you fi- received any feedback about, even though it is fiction, some people can't get over the fact that even though it's fiction, have you seen your feedback to somebody saying, hey, that's just a little too much. This doesn't really happen this way. Yeah, I have heard a few people raise that with me uh, when I walked around places talking about the book, uh, speaking here and there. And, uh, uh, and I always tell them, first, this book is set in South Carolina, <laughs> but it's not just about South Carolina. Right. Uh, and uh, it is true uh, that I believe that public servants uh, are out there. There's so many I admire, I support, I get behind when they're running because they're great people who want the best for their families and for South Carolina or North Carolina or the country. But I also remind those people in South Carolina who raise it that there was a time in the 1990s when 10% of the South Carolina legislature was under indictment for taking bribes uh, uh, on video. <laughs> so Small, you know. look, look, they're 90% were doing well, John. <laughs> That's Come right. You know. uh, it does happen. And, and let's don't forget, in North Carolina, uh, we won't have to go into that history, but there's right. plenty of recent history in North Carolina of – uh, elected officials going to prison. Well, you're also in the business of, you know, trying to tell an entertaining story. And I mean, right. I think John Gresham once said when somebody asked him, you know, why are you writing about lawyers and judges that are complicit in all these shenanigans? And he said, well, you know, so most of the time they're all good, but says, uh, you know, I got to sell some books here, you that's know. Right. And so that's what that's, they say about newspapers. We, we don't <laughs> write about all the planes that lands, hopefully. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to do this little thing called the Writing Life segment. I, uh, I'm doing some different pieces here. It's going to be some fill-in-the-blanks, some true-false, uh, truth as far as you're concerned, not necessarily truth entirely, but uh, true-false. Routine is an important part of your writing process. It, it was not for me. It was not. I was working full-time. Uh, I did it uh, when, when I just had time and when I also was excited about doing it. Hmm. Publishing is a journey, not a sprint. True, false. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it took you. Took you, how many years did you work? Well, on? if you want, I, from the time I wrote the first paragraph yeah. to the time the book came out it was yeah. ten years. Now, yeah, there were periods of time. But you there. were doing other things during yeah. that ten years. Yeah. Nine yeah. months, I was working yeah. on some case and not paying attention to this. True, false. Writing the second book is harder than the first. I, well, since I haven't written the second <laughs> one yet, I have to plead guilty to that. Uh, but people, uh, And that sort of leads into my question yeah. about it, because I know you've been asked this over and over and over yeah. again. Hey, John, when are we going to get the sequel here? We're going to uh, find out what happens to Kate and you know Wade and all this kind of stuff. Right. You've thought about it, right? I, I, not only have I thought about it, I do think about it. And uh, I still take a lot of notes. I still think about the plot that would... Uh, that would hold some of these characters together and bring in some new characters. And I think uh, I, I'm still practicing law, but right. I think as soon as I quit, I'm going to give gonna it start. a shot. Good. But there's the fear, I have to say. I thought about this for a long time, a little bit of fear that uh, can I do it as well as I thought I did this one. All right, uh, fill in the blank. The vices and activities that would interfere with my writing include? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, oh, the, the, my grandchildren. I have three yeah, great, wonderful yeah. gra- grandchildren. One of them's only 10 months that old. That would be an activity, not a vice. Oh, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, you have to include uh, tennis as a vice, and, yeah. uh, and, and I'm a terrible golfer, but my friends still let me go with them, and I like their companionship. So uh, there are things like that. In terms of uh, vices, you know, I have to admit, I love to read. Yeah, and, uh, and that's that's the that, good that's kind of That's a big advice. temptation. Yeah. yeah, if I could tell my younger writing self something very helpful, it would be. Well, almost to, to address something you said earlier, I think you need to write, at least initially, what you really know, because uh, I know there's some old quotes I've seen that uh, I can't remember where it came from, but something about fiction must speak to the facts 
uh, and the truer the facts, the better the fiction. You know, Tom Wolfe mm-hmm. uh, was a nonfiction uh, writer who then wrote several novels, not perfect novels, but good novels. And he, because he could create a scene that was so real, it made you believe even some of the parts of the story that might be hard <laughs> to believe. So I think that's, uh, that's an important part is make sure you either know these things or you go learn about them enough so that they're, they're credible. It makes the rest of your story credible. Yeah, sometimes there's more truth in fiction than there is in real life. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Blank was a helpful influence on me as a writer. It can be a person or a thing. Well, uh, I, event. You know, I'll, I'll say a couple real quickly. Uh, Robert Penn Warren's uh, All the King's Men, great American novel, has a great influence. Tom Wolfe, uh, because of his ability to focus on facts and make them part of uh, uh, fiction, uh, for sure, uh, those two. So what's a fact about you uh, as a writer that people might be surprised to learn? Well, I used to tell people uh, when they would ask for that, the thing that would surprise me about me is that I've actually written a novel. <laughs> but it, may, it may surprise them now that I, pr- I practice law as long as I have for over four yeah. decades. Yeah. So how did you balance that? How did you balance the writing life with the with the legal life? Well, I used to get friends of mine, uh, particularly lawyer friends, who'd walk up to me and go, how did you even find time to write that right, book? Right, like right. I must not have been working hard enough. Or <laughs> they could have written two or three novels if they just had, had a little bit more time. Yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, I know you. You play golf twice a week. That's that's eight or ten hours. If you'd spent ten hours a week writing a book, I did when I was really deep into it. Uh, instead of playing golf, you could do it too. Give up some things, some of those vices we talked about. So how has this journey of writing a book shaped the rest of your life? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I set out at the beginning to be sure I had put in one place some of the themes and values that had been important to me, and I wanted to be sure my kids, and uh, I got two kids and three grandkids right now, that they understood the cultures that had shaped me because whether they know it or like it or not, uh, it shaped them. Hmm. And I wanted them not just to have vague memories of me telling them a story sitting on the porch of a beach house or over dinner, uh, but I wanted them to have it when I wasn't here anymore Hmm. to remind them of some of these things, whether it was how to go crabbing, which is a little scene in there mm-hmm. that comes yeah. back in the yeah. trial scene, yeah. to know a little bit about the, the some of the law I practiced and the places I grew up and my family grew up. Uh, that is, I, I am so glad I got this done and That's finished great. it. And That's great. A couple of either ors. It can be either or, both, neither. Were you an outliner or a free flower in this process? A little both. I mean, uh, I, I had a general idea of how I wanted to start, what the, who the characters were going to be. I knew it, I'm not a dark guy, so I knew mm-hmm. it wasn't going to mm-hmm. end terribly darkly. Uh, and uh, although there's some dark, dark things that happen <laughs> yeah, along yeah, the way, we yeah. all know. My daughter right. kept saying, "Why did you do good, that?" Good conflict. Yeah. Good conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the family read it. Your family read they, it. They yeah. did. Is any it? reviews on Amazon from them? Yeah. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. I wasn't smart enough to do all that. Yeah, I didn't uh, know about that. Anyway. So um, I know lawyers like to close their doors, get quiet. When you're writing, did you require complete quiet, or, did, or is ambient noise fine with you? Did you? Uh, I like the quiet. Uh, I, I like to say I wrote a lot of this book right in the car where I would just turn all the music off. Like you're not you're not driving the car at the time. Yeah, yeah I'm driving the car. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. thinking it. You're I'm writing thinking. it in your head. Okay. I'm writing it in my head. Right. Right. Okay, you're not you're not doing no, it on your phone. I, I would say now what what can happen next? <laughs> right. I mean, I know I want to get from A to B, but what can yeah. happen? What can people say to one another? Yeah. And over a period of you know, it's about four hours from sure. here to the South Carolina yeah. coast. I'd be by myself. Sometimes my dog Molly would be with me, my Springer Spaniel, and. Uh, 
I would think out this dialogue, and and before you knew it, I was there. And, right. uh, so I did it. I did it that. But quiet is important to me to think hard about anything, really. So there's a scene in here. We're probably not going to have time for it because we're going to get to another couple of scenes I want right. you to read. But there, you've got a scene in here called Wade, Wade McNabb's Church. Can right. you talk a little bit about sure. his church? Sure. Well, uh, you know, Wade uh, ends up hiring when he gets sued. Uh, he gets told that uh, there's a woman right there in Georgetown who's the right lawyer for this case for him. She'd been with a big firm. She'd been an environmental lawyer, of course. That mm -hmm. Often at a big firm, that means you're defending the people who are trying to pollute the environment. Right. Uh, but uh, she didn't want to do that anymore. She wanted to be more like, in her mind, more like Atticus Finch. She comes to Georgetown, starts out on her own, doing some criminal defense work. But she's got this kind of civil litigation experience. She gets hired by Wade. Wade realizes that he is putting, essentially, his life. He's mm -hmm. a single guy. He's mm -hmm. mid-40s. Kate's mid-30s. Uh, in her hands, the thing that he came back here to nurture, his dad's old newspaper. So he says, uh, and he's a bit of a funny guy, and he, he says, Kate, uh, tell you what, um, I've hired you. I've put my newspaper in your hands. I think we need to get to know each other a little better. How about going to church with me tomorrow? And she's sort of taken <laughs> back a little bit. And she says, well, I, yeah. I'm not sure. And yeah. she hems and hauls. And he, he persuades her. He's a charmer. Persuades her to come. And, uh, and says it'll, uh, so he shows up at her, at her house with his, uh, in his Jeep and dressed in shorts and T-shirt. And she can't quite figure this out. But uh, he had told her to bring along some clothes in case they go on a picnic after or something, a church picnic. Mm -hmm. So they head off. They get in his boat, his dog with him. And they head out to North Island, which is right out off of Winyu Bay outside of Georgetown. His church is nature. His church is nature. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so she begins to get that. And it, but that helps weave in some of these themes of the environment, the importance of that environment, of that community, Wade's fear of losing this mm -hmm. lawsuit. Kate explains to him a little bit. You know, they do get to talking at one point, sitting out on the beach. Got a little sexual tension here, maybe, you know. So, yeah, there you yeah, go. A little relationship, I, uh, yeah. They're, they're the right age. Did, did they get on you for not going a little further with that? You know, some of the... Uh, a couple of my credit. friends were expecting something to happen right there on that <laughs> beach, but I told them, <laughs> told them be patient. All right, so so can't have, you know, a lawyer who's got trial law experience and First Amendment experience and a confidential source in play in a lawsuit without a courtroom scene. And we've got several courtroom scenes in this book. We're not going to go through them all because there's a very pivotal courtroom scene in the, near the very end of the book, which the listeners are going to have to, you know, you got to go read the book, you know, to see right. that one. But there is a scene that gives us a sense of uh, of uh, the, the sort of the golden tongue that, uh, or the silver tongue, maybe would be a better way to put right. it, the, that that Buck Ravenel has, and uh, that begins on page 284. Ravenel's deep red tie, the underside loop, bore the logo of Ben Silver's men's shop, Charleston's Best, sported small dark blue ducks with green heads. Like most courtroom lawyers, Ravenel was secretly superstitious. He had never appeared in court without a tie that had at least some red in it. Ravenel buttoned his suit jacket with his left hand, smoothed it against his flat stomach, and gestured with his right hand toward the judge, smiling. Judge Jones, as the psalmist wrote, a single day in your courtroom is better than a thousand elsewhere. I thank your honor for scheduling this matter on such short notice for us. I'm sure counsel for the defendants appreciates that as much as we do. Before I address the precise merits of our motion, I would like to set the stage for the court, your honor, just a bit. Judge Jones nodded and Ravenel continued. 
Years of courtroom and Senate oratory had taught him that bearing his voice down on the occasional verb and adjective enhanced the impact of his delivery. This case involves claims for libel for the defamation of the character of an upstanding corporate citizen of this state, Carolina Phosphate, and for the defiling, your honor, of the reputation of Francis Tripp Ravenel, director of the South Carolina Environmental Resources Agency, a fine public servant of this state. Their reputations were eviscerated by the pilot's publication of false assertions that Carolina Phosphate, in effect, bribed Tripp Ravenel to ensure that the Environmental Resources Agency would issue a wetlands permit for a plant here in Georgetown. My clients warned the newspaper before it published its story that those assertions were false and should not be published, Ravenel continued. Those warnings and pleas fell on closed ears. Not deaf ears, Your Honor, but closed ears. They could hear us, Judge, but they callously refused to listen. Ravenel looked over at Wade McNabb and Sandy Anderson. He made a dramatic pause between each of the words of his next sentence. Judge, they published these lies anyway. And judge, what they wrote was worse than lies. They were half-truths. It's like bait on a hook, judge. The bass sees that worm dangling and bites it. It tastes pretty good. So he just gobbles down the rest, hook and all. That's how the half-truth works. I get this vision of this lawyer saying, I'm just a good old country lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's when you put your hand on your pocket. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's when you worry. So we got the courtroom, and uh, there, there's still some, some, some book left here because you bring us into the courtroom uh, with some time left here. But uh, things aren't looking good for the home team, which we still haven't disclosed the confidential source. We're protecting that. But talk about just a second before we get to this final read. What happens to a newspaper and a reporter when, they, when they're told by a court to disclose their confidential source and they don't do it? Well, uh, many states now, almost every state, if, if assuming you're in state court like they were in South Carolina, has a shield statute, which gives some protection uh, to uh, reporters and newspapers uh, from uh, disclosing their sources, particularly their confidential sources. South Carolina has a shield statute. Buck Ravenel was involved when it was getting passed in this book. <laughs> and, in fact, the South Carolina Shield Statute expressly uh, exempts from the coverage of the Shield Statute cases where a newspaper is a party. And what's that going to be? A libel suit. Right. So there's no Shield Statute in this case. Hmm. That was sort of important to me as I was writing the book, knowing that it was going to be tricky saving uh, – uh, uh, saving the newspaper from disclosing the source. So what happens? So the judge orders you. If he finds that it's cr important to the case mm -hmm. and, and it's evidence that ought to be before a jury, he could order you to disclose that source. In a libel case, this has happened in a few places around the country over the years. The defendant, the newspaper defendant, in a libel case refu refuses over a court's order to disclose its source, and the judge may say, well, okay, we're going to issue a default judgment. You're going to be found guilty on the issue of did you defame them and now we're just going to go and let the jury decide how much damage has been done it's an extreme remedy but it is one you have to worry about and what are what are the i don't want to get too deep into the right. weeds here but what are the circumstances under which 
you know, a newspaper would be forced to disclose their source. Well, you know, even with the shield statute protection. Uh, Is it just discovery? I mean, they just want to find out. Yeah, it's during yeah. discovery. And, and right. they would want to know because here you've got a public, you've got to get a little right. in the weeds here, but yeah. a public figure, sure. public official plaintiff. Uh, and, and so they don't, got, want, they don't want newspapers just making stuff up. Right. right. In those cases, the plaintiff's got to prove that the, the, the newspaper either knew or uh, that, that what they were publishing was false or had doubts about the truth. And so if you're the plaintiff's lawyer, you say, I want to know who that source is. Did you really have a source, number mm-hmm. one? Number mm-hmm. two, if you had it, is this a source that we can persuade a jury that you, in fact, really did not believe? If we can just learn enough about that source— or maybe you didn't report it exactly the way it right. was communicated to you, right? right. right. Okay, right. so we're in this lawsuit. Um, we've got these characters. Um, we've got some some. We, we know who the bad guys are, <laughs> <laughs> and we know that the bad guys are are yeah. working hard to to put Wade McNabb out of business and 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 make the lawyer, uh, you know, in one of her first cases, I assume, in the in the in the Low Country here, um, lose. And so we're gonna we're gonna. There's a little scene here which I think sets up sort of the last quarter of the book. It, it's, it's that part in, in most novels where there's sort of no way out and, and all's lost. Right. So, and, and of course, this is Sandy and, and uh, the reporter and Wade, the uh, publisher, uh, talking with uh, their lawyer, uh, Kate Stewart. Sandy and Wade looked the glummest they had since the suit began. Neither had really let himself believe they could end up losing the newspaper. So what do you think the judge will do on Monday, Wade asked. It sounds to me like he's going to hold the two of you and the newspaper in contempt of court, Kate said. Then he says he's planning to strike your defenses and enter a default judgment against you and the newspaper. Then the only issue is damages. He'll give us a chance to do some discovery, take depositions of Tripp Ravenel and Carolina Phosphate to see if they have any evidence they have actually been damaged by your story, and he's likely to give them a shot at punitive damages. He'll probably set the damages part of the case for trial early next year. Is there any way we could appeal an order requiring us to reveal our sources and holding us in contempt of court, Sandy asked? We can try, but given the careful way Judge Jones has handled this, I think the Court of Appeals will deny any attempt to have it reviewed at this stage. They'll probably let it go to trial on the damages issue first, and in the meantime, your insurance company is likely to jump ship and leave you paying for your defense on, and on the hook for any verdict the jury might come back with. The room was silent, and they could hear the faint pealing of the bells of the Prince George Episcopal Church signaling the 9 o'clock hour. Well, you know I'm not going to abandon you no matter what the insurance company does, Kate said. I'm here for the duration, and we'll work out a way to keep us in boiled shrimp, beer, and martinis till this thing's finished. I respect you two for sticking to your principles, and I'm with you right there in the arena. So the stage is set. We're not going to give away what <laughs> what happens next. Uh, John, your your books won some awards. Uh, Independent Bookseller Association, uh, Benjamin Franklin Silver Medal for Best New Voice in Fiction, 2013. You won uh, uh, an Independent Publisher Association's Award, a Reader's Favorite Award, Forward Reviews Book of the Year Literary Fiction Finalist, 2012. Come on, John, let's write that other book. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, uh, so where, where do people find your books? Uh, I know Parkwood Books 
has it. It's probably in the library too, and it's probably online. And it sure is. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's a it's a Kindle version of it. Uh, I think it's on just about any electronic yeah. version of books. I have you done too. an audio version yet? I have not. Are you I thinking have, about? I it? I am thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Do that. I mean, I think that'd be get somebody with a good a uh, low country accent to do to do Buck. <laughs> right. You know? right. It'd, be, right. It'd, be, it'd be great. Well, we're looking forward to. Uh, the next installment, you need to go ahead and retire so you can spend more time <laughs> working on this book. Any, any parting thoughts for the uh, lawyer authors to be out there? Well, it, it's for lawyer authors, and, and it really is for everybody. I think most of us who've led active lives have some good stories, right. at least a few good stories in us. I tell this to every group I've ever spoken to. In every one of those audiences, there are people who uh, have some stories. They ought to write them down. They don't have to write a novel. Uh, they could write them in letters to their kids, their grandkids, their nephews, their nieces, because one day those folks are, get old, are going to get old enough to wonder more about the forces and the cultures and the experiences that shaped them. And uh, we're not going to be around to tell them those stories. And it'd be a good thing to write them down somewhere so they can get shared. Yeah, and everybody can write their own story. They don't have to worry about perfect punctuation or right. perfect prose or anything. Put it, exactly. put, put it down on paper. And if you want more... Uh, about that. There's Charlotte Writers Club. There's Charlotte Center for Literary Arts. The library has some writing groups. I mean, there are all kinds of opportunities you know, to get involved in, in this city. Yeah, John, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for writing this book and uh, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun to be here with you. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Frank Morelli, uh, Frank uh, is a middle school teacher whose writing talent led him to write his well-received debut novel, No Sad Songs, about a teenager forced by the death of his parents to look after a grandfather suffering severe dementia. In addition to reading uh, and discussing No Sad Songs, Frank discusses uh, his essay about the death of his grandfather and introduces us to the first book in his recently published middle school series. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn, at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Reader's Podcast.